C.S. Lewis wrote in uh, probably one of my favourites of his books, uh, after Lion, Rich in the Wardrobe, obviously, but uh, The Four Loves, he wrote this. There's no safe investment. To love at all is to be vulnerable. Love anything, and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly be broken. If you want to make sure uh, of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully round with hobbies and little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the casket or coffin of your selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It won't be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. The alternative to tragedy, or or at least to risk of tragedy, is damnation. Because the only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly safe from all the dangers and perturbations of love is hell. There's no safe investment. Whatever you love and live for will hurt you at some point. But we love because that is the way that we've been beautifully created And we put ourselves, therefore, in positions of vulnerability, giving of ourselves, because the alternative, as Lewis puts, is absolutely tragic. As Christians, having been loved by God in such an immeasurable way, uh, through the giving of his Son, uh, through faith in him, we can be saved from a loveless eternity to an eternity only knowing his love. But now... Well, all we can do is respond to that love. We respond to that ultimate love of God by living for him, by loving for him, by making ourselves vulnerable, living such good lives, as we saw back in chapter 2, verse 11 last week, contributing to the society and the culture around us, not isolated, but being integrated without compromise. Oh, that will put us. That will put us in situations of hostility. Even danger, obviously in some parts of the world. Christians, we are, as uh, Peter puts it, we are aliens. He puts it that in the old translation. But we are foreigners. Foreign, foreigners who are exiles in this world. And we live in that tension, don't we, between accusation and appreciation, between rejection and acceptance. Uh, that tension is ultimately known uh, in the Christian as we live in this world now, but we look forward to the glory to come. And that is a tension that is key throughout the whole of this book. It's right there at the beginning of the letter and how the Christians were understood. Do you remember a couple of weeks back, just in that first verse of chapter 1? In the eyes of God, you see, Christians, we are elect people, chosen and loved by God. But in the eyes of the world, Christians are scattered, foreigners. Also in the Christian life and mind, it is radically different. We now have a different focus. It's focused on the eternal home uh, to come. It's, not, it's living for the kind of not yet, that glory. Christians have been called by God not to live secular lives dominated by today. And God is calling Christians to live lives defined by the day, 
the final day when time ends and eternity begins. And so Peter calls Christians then and now to go through the suffering they're experiencing in this life. And you must remember, in the context of 1 Peter, that is kind of low-level suffering. It's the kind of thing that you face in your workplaces when you dare to mention anything about Jesus. That little bit of mockery. (laughs) That patronising chuckle towards you. He's saying, go through that and stand firm in it and through it. Why? Because anything we, wait, we face now will be far, far outweighed by the glory to come. And so it is, you see, as we stand firm, living such good lives in the now, so that the eternal life established and defined by the cross is made clear and attractive to the world through us. You see, in one sense, you... And I are God's great strategy of turning a secular world completely upside down. The main theme of this letter is a call for Christians, as I said, to stand firm. Hence our series title. But but note that the standing firm, which Peter says again and again at the end of chapter 5, there's nothing, nothing passive about that. He says instead... Stand firm in chapter 4 is to live. Is to live for Christ. Speaking of Christ. All of that in the midst of low level jibing at you. Poking fun at you. Low level suffering. It's that living, that living now, looking ahead to what is to come that Paul now turns to in our chapter today. Chapter 4. And Paul shows us here that To live by the will of God today in this life requires a number of changes. And this will be our challenge today. To think about change in our lifestyle, in our hearts, and in our ambitions. Living by the will of God, first point then, will require a decisive change of thinking. It will require a decisive change of thinking. Now, if you look down at your passage there, look down, you'll see there's just one imperative, one instruction. Look down, it's there in verse 1. It says, arm yourselves. See, if we are to live for the will of God, as Peter mentions at the end of verse 2, we have to arm ourselves. Now, literally that means to gather arms. And we know what he's talking about. He's talking weapons here. It's like war language, isn't it? But that is the way of Christ. He's saying to be forewarned in our thinking is to be forearmed. That is, we arm ourselves by getting our minds straight, by sorting out how we think about stuff. And he says we're to have the same attitude as that of Christ, to think as Christ did about standing firm and living in obedience to his Father. And Peter, throughout this letter, has been building up this argument. Living obedient lives before God, despite the suffering. Uh, He's been put forward as an example, hasn't he? He's put Christ right at the centre. You see that in chapter 2, verse 22. Chapter 3, verse 14, where it's called a blessing there. Chapter 3, verse 18, Peter shows us Christ's example that we're then to imitate. But now, in chapter 4, the emphasis shifts slightly to... uh, 
willing us to suffer in order to do what is right. Verse 1 even goes as far as saying, look at it, as the one who takes on the attitude of Christ suffers and is then finished with sin. It's an extraordinary phrase. Let's just dive into those couple of verses, a little, look at them a little bit more closely. And firstly, you'll note the, chapter, the verse 1 begins, Christ is right at the front, isn't he? Therefore, since Christ suffers in his body, there's an emphatic kind of statement there. And the implication is that if Christ has done that, then followers should do that the same. Christians. If we follow Christ, this is the way of following him. Suffering for doing good. So we don't avoid difficult conversations, speaking about Jesus, inviting our friends to church. Look back if you want at chapter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts revere Christ as Lord, always being prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you for the, to give the reason for the hope that you have. Do this with gentleness and respect, though. Are you always prepared to give an answer for the hope that you have in Christ? Now, your suffering is the path of Christ and the path of the Christian. Does at this stage, you might be thinking, oh, does being a Christian, it doesn't look very appealing, does it? The end of verse 1 does seem to appeal there. He has suffered his body is finished with sin. That sounds amazing, doesn't it? We have a few clues what it means already. Just look back, if you can, at chapter 2, verse uh, 24. He himself bore our sins on his body that we might die to sin and live for righteousness. What Peter is now saying in, in chapter 4, verse 1, is that living for sinful desires has now gone. A Christian with God's life-giving spirit in their hearts should no longer be defined by their sinful desires. And we all have them, don't we? The point is that if we have the Spirit in our hearts, we now have the ability to say no. And this is mind-blowing. Peter is saying that our suffering for good leads to being done with sin, that, that we can say no and lead a godly life. This is the way that God uses us to help us stop being so self-serving. He uses paths of suffering. Which is better than anything we can purchase for our pleasure in this life because the end result is to become more like Christ. But how does it work? Because it can, can't it? It can seem at first glance a little bit perverse in some ways. The point is that as we suffer for the sake of Christ, God can use that suffering because it's in those dark moments of our lives that we begin to stop looking to ourselves, to our own needs and our wants, and we look to trust another, namely God, and serve another. Now, Peter is not looking for us to all walk out of here and just completely beat ourselves up or look for pain and suffering and anything like No, nothing like that. I mean, people in the past have tried that, you know, they tried to stop themselves physically uh, committing sins, and so they, they would beat themselves and all sorts of things. Very early church monks uh, got a habit of doing that. But Jesus' teaching goes so much deeper than just the mere physical here. He goes straight to the heart. I mean, you could, 
I was watching my son play rugby yesterday and I thought he nearly broke every bone in his body. But you could literally break every bone in your whole body and not be able to move whatsoever and still yet sin. (coughs) Suffering for following Christ works on a heart level, you see. Much of our sin happens, doesn't it, when we're looking for pleasure elsewhere. And therefore what happens when you give up those pleasures or they're taken from us in a situation of suffering... See, whether we renounce serving ourselves or through suffering we cannot serve ourselves, that desire of our hearts is taken from us. And when it is, where is the allure of sin then? He who has suffered in his body is finished with sin, Peter says. I know this is difficult, but I think Peter knows what he's talking about. He's renounced Christ three times. He's denied him, and he's later been imprisoned, and he's miraculously escaped. And what happened as a result of that suffering? He says sin has lost its grip. Self-serving has been transformed into life-giving service of Christ. And we're to arm ourselves with that same attitude, Peter is saying here that Christ has exemplified, because to be forewarned is to be forearmed. He who has suffered in his body is finished with sin. Martin Luther, the great reformer, once wrote this on this. He said, The kingdom is to be in the midst of your enemies, and he who will not suffer this does not want to be of the kingdom of Christ. He wants to be among friends. To sit among roses and lilies, not with the bad people, but the devout people. It's very much what Walter was saying earlier. Just surround yourselves with just Christians. Sit amongst the lilies and the roses, as Martin Luther would put it. Amongst the devout people. Don't, don't, Don't make it difficult by going speaking to people who don't know Christ. He says, oh you blasphemers, Luther says, and betrayers of Christ. If Christ had done what you are doing... Who would have ever been spared? So in this world, we Christians may have many trials, low-level trials, and let's be thankful for that. And Peter says, therefore, arm yourselves. Because God will use those trials as he kills our pride and prejudices through them. Arm yourselves. They will only be brief anyway. Glory's to come. So living by the will of God requires a decisive change in our thinking, first and foremost. But secondly, a decisive change in our lifestyle, secondly. Second point there. See, there are two patterns of life in this passage contrasted by Peter. The Christian life, he uses the term pagan, but the non-Christian life as well. Uh, lifestyle. And the contrast isn't just in these two verses, verse 3 and 4. Uh, it begins there. Look at uh, verse 3. You spent long enough living like that, he says. He's contrasting. And Peter is proposing a different lifestyle for those who have trusted the Lord Jesus and who are living for God by the will of God. Look in verse 7. There's to be sober kind of clear-headedness so we can pray. Verse 8. It's a life of love, not a life of lust. Verse 9, there's hospitality that's encouraged rather than orgies. Uh, Verse 9 to 11, it's a ministry there to other people rather than exploiting other people for your own benefit. It's self-serving rather than self-seeking. 
And you might say, isn't that a bit too black and white? Isn't the world, you know, the world's not that bad, is it, you might think? Well, I kind of want to say, no, but yes. Now, we live, and we're very blessed to live, in a morally upright society that over the previous, you know, X hundred years has been, uh, you know, upheld and defined by biblical ethics. But we therefore have a number of friends who I'm sure are very, very moral and upright people. They're charming, they're lovely, and they benefit society. But the lifestyles that Peter is putting forward here uh, uh, should be quite easily recognisable in all of us. We have a bit of both, don't we? His point here is that as Christians, saved through faith in Jesus' death on the cross, we ought to love more, we ought to serve more, we ought to be more hospitable, we ought to seek to, for the needs, to serve the needs of others more in our society. Why? In response to what Christ has done for us and how he's loved us. The reluctance of Christians in society then to indulge in the ways mentioned by Peter meant that they were disliked and they were slandered. People thought it was strange, as you see in verse 4. See, the pressure we know, don't we? The pressure to conform. Because if you don't conform, you get some chatter, don't you? You get some looks. You get ostracised, pushed out of the group. The pressure is always to go for the extra drink, to to sleep with a flirty colleague or whatever it may be. And Peter is saying, the temptations are there. I recognise that. Peter's saying that. But living for the will of God, he's saying, requires change. And this is not change that saves, but change that essentially will set you free. Free to live for God, for his good and perfect will. Oh, we could here go here, we could go pretty much any book in the Bible, in the New Testament. And the challenge is not to live in those two worlds. Because it tears you apart, doesn't it? When you're, in a sense, living for your own satisfaction, or living for Christ. And when you try to do both, you just get torn in two directions. We're to be resident aliens or foreigners living in this world. But we're not at home in this world. How do we do that? Serving the will of God today in the world, supported by the church. That's how we do it. And what, do we, what does Peter call that at the end of the book? He calls that standing firm. Living such good lives, as he says in chapter 2. And that is, in our distinctive, decisive change of lifestyle, we might draw people to our distinctive and decisive saviour, Jesus. Who was willing to go through suffering for our glory. How do we apply this? You might be sitting here going, why bother? Why bother with a distinctive, a decisive change of lifestyle for Christ? Oh, it's just so much easier to just go along with everyone else. I wonder, do you, do you ever look back at uh, perhaps colleagues? You, you worked in a previous place, uh, yeah over the university or a previous firm, whatever your kind of workplace is. Have you ever looked back and wondered what it might have been or what might have happened if you'd lived a more distinctive life for Christ amongst those people, amongst that team? Do you ever look back and 
wonder if you dare to speak about Christ with that individual who you had day-to-day contact with, but you, you just don't anymore. Do you ever look back and wonder, what if? Think about uni friends or something like that, or, or people you knew. Uh, it makes me so sad sometimes to think of the missed opportunities in my life. The chances I had to demonstrate Christ-likeness or to speak of Christ, and I just let them down. A decisive change of lifestyle will always bring about a decisive change of opportunity, which is why Peter encourages us to change. Living by the will of God requires a decisive change of thinking to begin with, a decisive change of lifestyle, and now we see thirdly, a decisive change of heart. Look down at verse 5. It's a, it's a fairly brutal point that he makes. But it's there to change our hearts. Verse 5. But they have, will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Peter's point is that we can live for God knowing that, uh, knowing that will, he will bring us into confrontation with people around us and the world we live in. Living for God always brings uh, that kind of low-level suffering of, as we dare to speak for Christ. So it was confrontation with people. But if we go the way here that we see in verse 5, the way of compromise, remember it is a way of confrontation with God. They will have to give an account to him. The sin of verse 1, the human desires of verse 2, the kind of the wild, sensual living of verse 4. People believe, don't they? And maybe you do if you're sat here today. Maybe you believe that that will be the way that will ultimately satisfy you. But be warned, they are just mere tastes of the desires and the passions that we were designed to enjoy with God for eternity. It's so tempting, isn't it? Therefore, there must be a change in our attitude, our lifestyle, but it begins with our hearts. And Peter warns us to not turn away from God in our hearts because this is where it all begins. And the solemn warning of verse 5 is there to essentially give you a massive shock to your heart. Peter is pointing there towards that final judgment. And our final judgment will not be before our peers or our work colleagues or our family members. Now, the final judgment will be before God. And it will include everyone, even those who now judge you. So we're to ignore them. We're to ignore those little nasty comments when they speak about your faith in such derogatory terms. We're to ignore them when they, they mock you for your lifestyle that you live out, whether it's in the post-work drinks or with your uh, friends and with your loved ones. We're to ignore them. But we're not to ignore God's judgment because it's eternal. Their comments last a moment. His judgment lasts forever. Also, don't be surprised that your friends will miss this truth, for Christ is the building, uh, the stone that the builders have rejected. We saw that back in the early chapter. Look at Paul, he cont- uh, Peter, he continues his point in verse 6, though, doesn't he? For this is the reason the gospel uh, was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they may be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, 
but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. I know it doesn't sound like it, but this is actually comfort. Peter is showing that all of us, by human standards, will be judged. That is, we will all die because of our rejection of God as humankind. And some of the Christians who he's been writing to have already died, as we see. Perhaps because of persecution, but perhaps because of age or whatever, disease. But the gospel has been preached. Those who have responded to the gospel will be vindicated on that last day of judgment as they live uh, to God in the spirit in, in, for eternity. Peter is describing the path to life here. We die to sin now, every day. And that puts his unstoppable love in us by his spirit. How does that happen? As we respond to the good news of the gospel. There needs to be a change of heart. It is to live now today, but always with our hearts and our minds uh, focused on that judgment to come. There needs to be a change of heart to, to live in the light of the gospel that has saved us through faith. Let me just quickly summarise before we get to our final point. I wonder, do you see what Peter's doing in these verses? He's making sense of your life. I don't know if you, I don't know if you spotted that. He's making sense of your life by putting, in a sense, two immovable, uh, undeniable historical markers surrounding you. Peter's saying that you cannot make sense of life today, you cannot work it out, unless you know where you have come from and where you're heading to. See, what secularism does, what the, the, in a sense, the thinking of our time does today, it, it removes those two historical markers and it says this... Focus on this and this alone, today. That's what the word means. The seculon means the today. And, and secularism says, okay, we've got to be a bit more generous. So we nuance it a little bit and we say, oh, think about your life, your family's life. Time today. Oh, and maybe go back one generation, because you've got to look after your parents. That would be a bit bad if you didn't. And you look forward to provide for your kids. But that is it. And that is what life for many is all about. Just that. But we're coming from somewhere and going towards somewhere. Chapter 4, verse 1. The cross of Christ, where eternal life is bought. And the judgment of Christ, chapter 4, verse 7. That day of reckoning. And so Peter points us back to the cross which redeemed us from an old way of life, so that we want to live for him, his way. And so we need to stop talking just about today. We need to remind each other of these two things, that we, our life was bought here on the cross, and we're heading towards that day, that final day of reckoning, which Christ has secured for us, and the down payment in our hearts by his Spirit. Oh, God thinks that life matters now. Of course he does, and how we live for him. But we need to have a complete change of thinking. Our lives, this world, every life is defined by those two objective historical markers. Now Peter is not trying to alarm us. Oh, maybe wake us up. He's saying this is the reality, guys. Live in accordance with those two. And not just this today. 
And that is why I, I would say that your times with the Lord are so important. Whatever time you do it in the day, your quiet times, your devotions, because they realign your thinking. You're not consumed about the endless email box or, or everything else in your life that consumes you. You're focusing your heart and your mind on that fixed point of the cross of Jesus Christ and that fixed point in eternity to come when you meet God face to face. Sadly, so many people live with no reference to Christ. And as C.S. Lewis put it, as I quoted at the beginning, they wrap themselves, their lives carefully around with hobbies and little luxuries, avoid all entanglements, and they lock it up safe, their hearts in a casket or coffin of their selfishness. But in that casket, safe, dark, emotionless and airless, it will change. Their hearts will be broken. It will become unbreakable, impenetrable, irredeemable. Living by the will of God requires decisive change of thinking, so arm yourselves. A decisive change of lifestyle, a decisive change of heart, and lastly, a decisive change of ambitions. I know our time is short. Look at verse 11 with me. Just to finish, we're going to focus there. Scooting through those verses, verse 9 encourages us to demonstrate God's grace in its various forms. I just encourage you to be hospitable to one another and to those around you. It is so radical today. And beans on toast is fine. Beans on toast is fine. Verse 10 reminds us that a church is not a place of conformity, but a place of diversity, and we should rejoice in our differences as we serve one another. But with our thinking, our lifestyle and heart changes, so too will our ambitions be brought into line with the will of God. In what ways? Verse 11, if anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. And if anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides, so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. Speaking and serving. We are to do them both with the message and the strength that God supplies. Some here will speak, and they have roles of speaking and ministries of speaking, whether that's here or outside, and some of us will serve. We're not to exalt either gift. And if someone is speaking, they'll speak the words that God has given to them through his word, and therefore they must have confidence in that word. Note every single one of us, chapter 315, ought to be able to give the reason for the hope we have. We should all be speaking. Serving, we are, to, uh, we are asked to do what we can do. And we do it also with the strength that God provides. Why? Why do we do all of these things? With, in a sense, with what God provides and in his strength. Well, it's so that he might be praised and so that he gets the glory. And that should revolutionise the way that you think about coming to church and when you go out as well as a Christian. Because it's not about you. It all becomes about how you can glorify God and build up his people and grow his kingdom. It's not about you. It's about him and our Lord and Saviour. As we said last week in our kind of strap line is that we long that every life will bear fruit for Jesus. May that be so. We can all be serving God this week, bearing fruit in Jesus' name. How? 
Well, Peter spells it out here by living by the will of God. And that requires a decisive change of thinking, a change of lifestyle, a change of heart, and of ambitions as well. Let me finish with the great Bishop J.C. Ryle, if I may. Let us take courage. We are not far from home. It may cost much to be a true Christian and a consistent holy person. But it pays because of the glory to come. Let me pray.